and welcome to the Power of Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Miller. And in today's episode, we speak with Len Simon Esquire, who is an avid sports fan, successful sports lawyer, and sagacious law professor. Simon has represented a range of sports people in a series of fascinating legal cases, including the superstar soccer phenom Olivia Moultrie and her case against the National Women's Soccer League. He also writes op-eds regarding sports and the law and has been influential in helping to pass California Senate Bill 206, which gives California-based college athletes the power to control their names, images, and likenesses. So please listen in as I ask Simon about his early life in sports, how he became a successful sports lawyer, and what he thinks about the legal issues that remain in college sports today. I'm really excited to speak with you and learn from you about sports law, which I know has been a key part of your law practice now for many years, but not the entirety of your practice. But I'd like to start, if you don't mind, by telling me a little bit about your experiences with sports as a young boy. I read that you were a baseball player, so I imagine you maybe watched that sport too. Did you have any favorite heroes back in those days? Yeah, Mickey Mantle was my hero when I was a kid. I, you know, I played all the basic American sports, you know, baseball, basketball, touch football. I, I tried Pop Warner football briefly. I didn't like being knocked on my butt. But, I, you know, I was, I was just dead average in all of those sports. And baseball, I was probably a sliver better and enjoyed the sport a little more. And at that time, we're talking about, I was born in 1948. So mm-hmm. you're talking about like the 50s, early 60s. There was much more baseball on TV to consume. Especially sure. well, within the Yankees territory. I was in Hartford, Connecticut. So we got Yankees games, New York football giant games, some Red Sox, some Celtics. So yeah, Mickey Mantle was the guy, Whitey Ford, Yogi Berra. I was a diehard Yankee fan. I can still remember watching Mazeroski's home run go out and being just deflated in that great 1960 World Series. Sure. And you would have been about 12 years old at the time. Yeah. yeah. Those are formidable moments for a sports fan. And were there particular coaches that you had when you played sports or was were you playing informally or no, who were your influences? We played a lot informally. The elementary school and junior high school, which were at the same location, were a short bike ride from where we lived. And we would be over there playing informally all the time. Formally, I played baseball at the junior varsity level. In football, I was the team statistician. And the same guy was in charge of both teams. His name was Bob McKee. And he, he was a very good, emotionally, he was a very good coach. He could psych people up to get the best out of his great players and his good players and his average players. And I was impressed with that. It took some things from that in terms of a coach who could get his guys going. So uh, yeah, he wouldn't remember me because I didn't do much, but I do remember him. And you say you were the statistician for the team. How did you get yeah. into that? You know, I don't exactly remember. I knew I didn't want to play football. And I've, I went to all the games. A couple of my friends were, you know, were on the team. And I think there was something open, like manager or whatever. But it seemed like sort of a grubby job. And it turned out they did want somebody to keep team statistics, stand on the sideline and record the results of every play and then, you know, put it together in some very simplistic fashion. We're not talking about, you know, Billy B. Right. Corporate analysis at all. We're talking about gathering of data. And, I was a good math student until about the 11th grade. I think I topped out somewhere in there. So, you know, being mathematically inclined and, and sports inclined, it was a perfect job. Stand right on the sidelines. The players would, you know, almost 
you know, roll you over if they got knocked out of bounds and uh, keep a stat chart and uh, give it to the coaching staff when the game was over. So it was kind of fun. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and then I know that you were also a sports reporter and writer and editor before you became a sports lawyer. And so I understand you covered the 1970 NCAA Final Four and the 1971 ACC Hoops Tournament for the Schenectady Gazette. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. What was it like well, covering you know, that tournament? Those tournaments? In, high, in high school, you know, I was the sports editor of the school newspaper, which you'll find a lot of that in the sports, in the sports law world. There are a surprising mm-hmm. number of people who did that. And I did the same thing in college. And if you had asked me at some point when I was 15 or 17, what I wanted to do, I would have said law or journalism. <laughs> and uh, sports appealed to me a lot. So that was the route I took to some kind of a leadership position was to become the sports editor of both my high school and my college newspaper. I did some play-by-play broadcasts in college as well. I did football for a couple of seasons, and I think basketball for one season, and one wrestling match when our team was undefeated and there was one match to go. And there was no one who worked for the school radio station who knew wrestling technically, so they decided I was good enough since at least I knew how to do a play-by-play. Mm-hmm. It just occurred to me that you have such an interesting background in terms of covering sports, doing the play-by-play, and then, of course, becoming involved in sports and the law. There must have been something pretty early on in your life that you know sparked your interest in sports in general. Can you put your finger on that? I don't know. You know, there are people who self-describe as sports nuts, and they're described by others as sports nuts. And I think I just was one. My father took me to Yankee Stadium. I think when I was seven or eight, I watched a game. I was We were way up in right field and, you know, about the cheapest seats you could get at Yankee Stadium that weren't the bleachers. And I was just fascinated with it. And I read the entire program from front to back. I noticed there were some rich guys from the real estate world who owned the team. And I was just curious about what that meant to own the team. Did they manage mm-hmm. the team? You know, if you're mm-hmm. eight or go back, go back at 10, 12, 13, you start to sort of try to contemplate, what does that mean to have a team and, and have an owner and a manager and all of that? And you learn there are minor leagues and all those kinds of things. And it just, yeah, it was, always was sort of my, you know, my number one sort of hobby or interest or whatever. I read the sports pages carefully. Mm-hmm. So I was drawn to high school journalism, college journalism, and you know, we didn't have a ton of money. We weren't poor, we weren't rich. And having a part-time job or a summer job was a good idea. And so I got summer jobs as a sports journalist. I was very fortunate. I wrote for the Hartford Current, which is calls itself the oldest continuously published newspaper in the United States when I was at home in the summer. And I wrote for the Schenectady Gazette when I was at college, at Union College in Schenectady, New York. And, you know, when I was a freshman, I wasn't writing. I was studying or visiting girls' schools or whatever, since we had all guys sure. in our school doing all those things. And even as a sophomore, I think I wrote to the school paper. By the time I was a junior and a senior, I had more free time. And I was, I was literally a member of the sports desk at the Schenectady Gazette, but I worked more like 20 hours a week. The other guys worked more like 40 or 50. But I covered high school, high school games and all kinds of stuff. So when I was a senior in college applying law schools, one of the places I applied to was Duke. And they, they admitted me, and I was excited about that. I was in that top echelon of schools, and I thought I wanted to go to a strong law school somewhere not in the Northeast, different part of the country, and check it out. 
And so I decided I had to visit. And I just looked at the calendar and realized that Final Four was happening at a time contiguous to spring break and a good time to visit Duke and that to fly from Albany Airport, my closest airport, to Raleigh-Durham, you actually stopped in Washington, D.C. And Final Four was at Maryland. So it was like, it was perfect. So I visited Duke. I loved it. I ended up going there. And I stopped off at the Final Four, had press credentials, and, you know, filed an article with the Schenectady Gazette. They wouldn't, they would not have covered it. They would have run an AP or UPI story without uh-huh. me. It wasn't anything they had to cover. The high school games I covered had to be covered. But Final Four, you know, a regional newspaper like that doesn't need a reporter yeah. there. So I see. It was kind of cool. Curry Kirkpatrick was a great sports writer for Sports Illustrated then. And I bumped into him at like press, you know, lunchroom or something. It was, it was a great, it was a great experience. Yeah, it must have been a thrill. And UCLA won. It was John Wooden's team between the graduation of Kareem and the matriculation of Bill Walton. One year he didn't have a great center. They still won. And so I'm glad you brought up Curry. Kirkpatrick, because I was going to ask you about influences in the sports writing world. Were there others as well? Yeah, I loved Sports Illustrated. I'd read every every word, every page. I think I sent them an entry for like Faces in the Crowd or something. I've got, mm-hmm. got two, two little things published, one when I was younger and one, and one later that was very exciting. And sure. uh, I mean, Frank DeFord wrote there, Kirkpatrick wrote there. They had just phenomenal writers. I can't remember when Rick Riley showed up on the scene. It was always oh, did that last page of the yes. magazine feature, but I thought those guys were just brilliant they, and very they entertaining. Are. They are. And you're right. I used to read Life of Riley religiously. And so then take the listeners through how you went from writing about sports and reporting and doing sports editing as well to then choosing to to become a sports, well, to become a lawyer, first of all. I think. Yeah, well, I, I decided to go to law school and see what law school was like, still with this idea that I would do law or journalism. And I loved law school. And it, you know, it's interesting. You go off to law school and there's, you know, there were 170 first year students at Duke. They were all pretty smart. And some of them loved it and some of them hated it, even though they chose to go to law school. And some of them were good at it and some of them were not so good at it, even though some of the ones who were good at it had been phenomenally good at college. I mean, it was like, I from Dartmouth that was like a poet. And he was really smart and a great student at Dartmouth, but law was kind of too pedestrian for him. He didn't, he didn't like to deal with all the, all the details of it. And I just loved it. It just hit my brain. I immediately knew it was the right place to go. And so I was just an ordinary Duke law student soaking up what, what lawyers did, what kinds of jobs were out there. You could walk to Cameron Indoor Stadium from the law school in 10 minutes, literally. No, no camping out. No lines, no tickets, show your ID, walk in and watch really good college basketball. Duke was Duke was a B team then, not an A team. Okay. But North Carolina was phenomenal. South Carolina was in the ACC. They were phenomenal. Maryland had Tom McMillan and Len Elmore and people like that. There were great players all over the league. And it's a small arena, as you know. And <laughs> it, was, it was fantastic. So uh, that was another sort of boost to my sports mania and got me more into college basketball, which had only been a small thing when I was younger. And Duke had a program where if you had, I don't know, 10 or 15 students, so there was some minimum maximum number, you could create an ad hoc seminar on anything. 
All you needed was enough students who wanted to take it and a faculty advisor who was willing to advise you enough and coordinate enough and review your syllabus and review whatever finished product you had. Usually they were ended up being paper courses that it was worth law school credit. And several of us decided that of course in sports law would be a really interesting thing. I've never gone back and checked to see if it was the first in the nation. I certainly know that the guy who was our coordinator, a professor named John Weistart, he wrote the first sports law book yeah. in the nation for sure. And it was a direct outgrowth of him coordinating the class and deciding that, yeah, this actually is as interesting as these students thought. He was kind of, you know, he had to be dragged a little bit in, but he was he was a young professor and a very nice man. Mm-hmm. So he, he agreed to do it. And I think a, a moderate sports fan. And he just took different topics. One guy took labor law, one guy took antitrust, somebody took tax contracts, other things. And each of us led a discussion one week and it was fun. It was interesting. What did you lead? What was the subject you picked? I can't even remember. <laughs> Is that right? Um, okay. I can't remember. It wouldn't surprise me if it was if it was labor or antitrust, but I can't I can't remember. And you've done labor law and antitrust law since then. I yeah, understand. Yeah, labor and antitrust sort of find you if you're in okay. If you're in this. When I got into doing more sports stuff, I knew a lot about antitrust and very little about labor. I had I, I had see. to learn it just kind of on the job and by teaching it. But that what we're jumping ahead in the. That's okay. That's all right. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, let's 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 talk about that. Now, I understand that you know, after graduating from law school, you joined Arnold and Porter, which I understand from my father as an attorney is a very prestigious law firm. And what was your first legal case with them? No, nope. I'd like to say that my first legal case was fighting with Richard Nixon over his papers and tapes and that it's Mar-a-Lago, you know, pre- prequel to Mar-a-Lago. Yes. It might have been my second or third case, but it literally was within the first two weeks I was there, a senior partner came into my office and said, Nixon wants to have all of his papers and tapes shipped to San Clemente, and we're going to stop him. And here's a rough, rough, rough draft of a complaint. Why don't you spend the weekend getting in good shape? We'll file it Monday morning and ask for an injunction against shipping any of the papers to Nixon. And and you're just months out of law school at this point. I'm just, no, I, I cleared for a federal judge okay. in Los Angeles. So I was one year, I was one year beyond just out of law school. And that actually is very helpful in terms of getting something dropped on you that requires immediate work and that's going to federal court. I mean, spent a whole year in the court system and, you know, working with a judge who would say to me, now those lawyers did it right. And then the next day say, those lawyers are jerks. You can't do it that way. You're not going to win. You're going to piss off the judge. That was, it, it's, a, it's an education you wouldn't get in one year if you were at a law firm. Right. Might get it gradually over five years. So it's kind of a, a quick course in do's and don'ts. But it was a fascinating case. I ended up going to the deposition of Richard Nixon at the Western White House or whatever it is compound in St. Clemente. And uh, I didn't get to ask any questions. The senior partner did, but it was an experience. And write briefs, write briefs and case while well, we to the U.S. Supreme Court and actually caused Congress to pass the law, which Trump is now violating. Fascinating. And I wrote an op-ed for the San Francisco Chronicle about the comparison of the Nixon case and the, and the Trump case. I had a scattering of antitrust cases, securities fraud cases, what I would call 
classic Washington, D.C. cases. For example, mm-hmm. Ford Motor Company had a car, which once in a long while, if you were six foot four, 240 pounds, and you were driving, and you moved around a lot in your front seat, it was a bucket seat car, mm-hmm. your seat would collapse, and you would end up flat on your back. There was some kind of a hinge that was weak. Oh, my. And it happened very rarely, but as you can imagine, it's sort of in a calamitous fashion. And so there was a recall and there was a fight about how many cars needed to be recalled and how quickly and all of those things. So that was an example of a case. I had an antitrust case for Xerox, which was charged with monopolizing the market for copying machines. It went to trial in Newark. I got to spend some time in beautiful downtown Newark. I had antitrust cases for Philip Morris Tobacco Company brought by tobacco sellers, tobacco growers and sellers that there was a conspiracy to prices down. It was, it was a fascinating practice in terms of big cases, but we usually represented the big guys with the exception of pro bono cases. The Nixon case obviously was, was done pro bono. I represented the uh, well, no longer existing organization folded into other gun controlled organizations called the National Coalition to Ban Handguns. And I was kind of their lawyer in Washington and represented them for four or five years and a variety of matters attempting to stem the tide of guns in the United States, not with a great deal of success. We, we tried. And then just a lot of, you know, corporate, corporate cases. I did litigation. I didn't, I didn't want to do transactions. I didn't want to do deals. I knew I wanted him to, to be in court or working toward being in court. People say, oh, you, you, how often do you go to court? In big cases. You're not physically in court that often, but you're doing things that lead to a result. Right. What is it about litigation that appealed to you? You know, it's just what I thought law was. Mm-hmm. I was pretty naive. And being a kid, I had seen Perry Mason and the Defenders, which you probably don't remember from way back. And they, they were lawyers. They went to court. They did interesting things. Sometimes they represented the public interest. Sometimes they were just doing law. And to me, that's what a lawyer did. It was like probably a lot of people, you know, think what a doctor does is surgery. That's what a lawyer did. When I got to, and when I got to school and there were people who said they wanted to do transactional work, I didn't really know exactly what they meant. I had to probe a little bit to find out they meant, you know, doing deals, lawyering deals. Yes. And my reaction was, okay, that's fine. You can do that. That's not what I came here for. I came here to fight with people about something large or small, sports or not. Native side or defendant side, but or civil, but something where you where you're you're going ultimately going to court and you're trying to win something for your client. Did so, your fascination with sports and competition at an early age have any bearing on that fascination maybe, with litigation? You, you, you do have a winner and a loser. You have a winner and a loser in a courtroom. So I think I think there probably is a little bit of a subliminal draw there. Very interesting. But yeah. you know I. Out of nowhere, two good sports law cases came into the firm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Louis Kuhn was the commissioner of baseball then, and the firm had represented the commissioner of baseball, baseball's office in, in many kinds of matters for many years. I think there was another law firm in New York that had part of the, you know, part of the client, and we had part of the client, depending on the nature of the dispute. And early in the world of free agency, Charlie Finley decided to sell three of his players in midseason because he thought he would lose them in free agents. Something that happens all the time now. All the time. But it never happened before. It was the first time. And Billy Kuhn didn't like free agency in the first place. So the notion that the A's were essentially going to take 
they were going to sell Raleigh Fingers, Joe Rudy, and a third. And three of their best five or eight players, they would have nothing left. And they were going to be going through the motions. And he hated the idea. So he simply rejected the deal. Hmm. And there was litigation on that. Our firm represented the commissioner's office. I had a very small role. I just did some research. There was a younger lawyer about my peer one or two years ahead of me. He was really the junior lawyer on the case. Mm -hmm. And I helped when there was overflow. But I thought it was fascinating to be working on a case for a major league baseball. Absolutely. I wished I had had a bigger role. And sure enough, Ted Turner also, you know, early in free agency, announced that as to Gary Matthews Sr., not Gary Matthews Jr., but, but his dad, who was a very good player, at a time when Matthews belonged to the Giants and the Giants had exclusive negotiating rights to him for a certain amount of time, and then he would become potential free agent, Turner announced to the press that he would pay whatever it took to get Matthews, which, of course, incentivized Matthews to sign with the Giants, and he became a free agent, and, and Turner signed him at a high price. Mm -hmm. Giants sued for tampering. Mm -hmm. And Turner's defense was, I didn't talk to him at all. I just talked to the press. And he sued us in Atlanta. And I was heavily involved in that case. There was three lawyers were assigned to work on the case, and I was the junior one. And we went to trial in Georgia. And it was federal court. It was a lot of fun. Uh, we mostly won. Coon had taken away a draft choice from the Braves and had suspended Turner from any involvement in the team for a year. And the court ruled that the suspension was proper, but that taking away a draft choice was not listed anywhere in the list of punishments that the commissioner could use when anybody engaged in misconduct. And so if you couldn't, if it wasn't listed, that meant you couldn't do it. There's the Latin term for that in law, expressio unio, some damn thing, but that's what it means. If you list a lot of things, it, the, the implication is other things are not intended. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was at the commissioner's office several times. I defended the deposition of Lee McPhail, who was the president of the American League. Then Chubb Feeney was the president of the National League. Then I was in the room when Hume was deposed and helped prepare for cross-examination of Turner. And there was an owner, I can't remember his name, I think maybe of the Brewers then. And, he had been like chairman of the MLB committee free agency or something or other. And he had to explain to the judge why the rules were important. It was a jury. It was not a jury trial. And he was absolutely perfect because he was a businessman about the same age as the judge. Lawyers would ask him a question that he would turn to the judge and have a chat with him about, about the answer. He was very effective. So we mostly won. It was fun. And I, I loved it. I would have been happy to have five more of those, but I don't think I got any. I think there was a there was there was something relating to the Federal Communications Commission and broadcasting and blackouts in which I had to write an opinion letter, but it would just sort of went into the law of you know analysis and planning and what have you, and nothing further was done. So I think that was the extent of my sports practice. And back in those days, Lynn, were were professional baseball teams or other professional sports teams represented by in-house counsel? Or primarily situations like yours? They all had in-house counsel and they had outside counsel. They tended to be represented by, first of all, they were all different. 
hmm. were really different. I mean, there were teams that the son-in-law, the owner, was the in-house counsel. Mm-hmm. And he might be a brilliant Harvard lawyer, and he might be not much. Right. And they were given the responsibilities that they were, you know, they were entitled to. So the relation between in-house and outside counsel depended a lot on who your in-house lawyer was. But to give you an idea, at Major League Baseball at that time, there were two in-house lawyers. There was the general counsel, Sandy Haddon, who was a very experienced, wise guy who I would guess was in his 50s. And there was a very young lawyer. That was it. Mm-hmm. I was just at the winter baseball meetings and I bumped into one of their lawyers and I said, how many lawyers do you guys have in-house? you have 100? He said, oh, no, no, not 100. He said, I don't think we have more than 40 or 50. That's a spectacular difference from back then. So you, you mentioned the Ted Turner case. I was fascinated to hear about that. So I'm glad you mentioned it. And you mentioned as well about switching from, at some point, from doing work that was primarily representing corporations to then ultimately working for plaintiffs suing corporations. So I was curious about that transition in your career and, and what maybe precipitated it. Sure. I would like to say I was, I was smart enough to know that I was a natural plaintiff's lawyer, but I really wasn't. <laughs> when I came out of law school, if you offered me a job as a plaintiff's lawyer or a defense lawyer, I would have considered them both interesting. As it turns out, if, if you go to Duke Law School and you have pretty good grades, the offers that are going to come to you are going to be from large corporate firms sure. and mostly do defense work. The plaintiff's firms tend to be smaller and often don't even hire rookie lawyers. They prefer to hire lawyers who have learned their trade at the defense firm. So I it wasn't like I had a choice, okay. a choice, unless I went out of my way to find a smaller firm or a plaintiff's firm. And there were no firms doing sports. You know, if you come out of law school now, you could go to work for Proskauer or, or a firm like that. And they have a sports department. Sure. Latham and Watkins has a sports department. There were no firms, anything like that, that had sports departments. And so I fell into what I did. I liked being a lawyer a lot. I did think being a plaintiff's lawyer might look, might look like a little more fun, but I wasn't sure how to get there. Mm. And what really happened was my wife and I decided to leave, leave Washington, leave Arnold Porter and leave Washington. We decided to leave Arnold and Port. Let me state it better. I decided to leave. I didn't think that I had great prospects long-term. There were too many lawyers piled up in the same part of the firm. What one sometimes does when one leaves practice in Washington, D.C. is to go into the government and then come back out as an expert in something. But Ronald Reagan had just gotten elected, and it was a very political process then. I was a card-carrying Democrat. I wasn't going to get a good job in that administration. And we had lived in Los Angeles for a year when I clerked and my wife had been there for half of that year, finishing law school at UCLA. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately, after looking around at some cities closer to Washington, like Baltimore and a few other oddball jobs, we decided Southern California was our target area and that San Diego looked like a more livable place, easier place to raise kids than Los Angeles. And I came to, I wrote some letters. I came out to San Diego. I interviewed 10 firms, eight firms. Only two of them were plaintiff's firms, but I liked both of them a lot. I immediately, upon talking to the people and realizing they were spending all day suing the kind of people I defended, it just seemed like that was at least as good a job and probably a better job, other things being equal, as long as they were good lawyers and all of that. And one of them offered me a job and it was a class action firm, which was even better because class actions 
were something I'd spent a lot of time on at Harlan Porter defending them. And I really liked the concept that you were not representing one person, but thousands who had been harmed by the same product or the same fraud or what have you. And so I, I jumped at the opportunity. It was sort of like once I saw that firm, which was then called Milberg Weiss, I wanted to do that. And they, their view was once they saw me, they felt I fit firm very well. So I joined the firm and started representing plaintiffs in very similar cases to the ones that I had defended in Washington. And my wife and our three kids moved to San Diego. And we haven't left. And I haven't really left the firm, although it has a different name. And, you know, people have come and gone and things have changed. How fascinating. You've also done some really interesting legal work in San Diego as well. I, I know you've represented Major League Baseball, but also the Padres franchise as well. Right. And, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about those experiences. Sure. You know, again, most of my work, certainly in the first 10 years at the firm, was non-sports related work, just as it had been in Arlen Porter. Most of the, most of the way you make your living is not on sports, sure. unless you're of course. A very, in a very rare category. So I, I sued people who had violated the law. Charles Keating, if you remember that name, Lincoln mm -hmm. Savings and Loan, that was a very big case that I was co-lead counsel on. I brought a suit against the market makers in the NASDAQ over a, a conspiracy to limit the, the spread between asked prices and bid prices on the NASDAQ market, which was sort of like stealing a nickel from a gazillion people on a gazillion transactions. And it was a lot of nickels. We settled the case for $1.05 billion. Unbelievable. With, with a B. All my other cases settled with numbers with a M, million dollars, but it was a very good case. And I, I had no sports practice back then. We just didn't sue anybody in the sports business. And then a few things just fell into our laps. First thing that happened was Larry Lucchino came out to run the San Diego Padres. John Moores bought the team. Larry Lucchino was then involved with the Orioles. I built Camden Yards mm -hmm. and Moores. I'm not sure you'd say hired him or made him his partner, but he made him a co-owner and sort of the chief operating officer of the team. And Larry was a very fine lawyer, you know, Princeton, Yale Law School. Played in the final four. He was sitting on the bench when Bill Bradley was playing in the final four. And I knew a lot of people at his firm. He had been at Williams and Connolly, Edward Bennett Williams firm in Washington. And I called them. I said, introduce me. I got to know him. And so... I did some legal work for the Padres. I got to know the, the majority owner, John Morris. Uh, he put me on his board of directors. And being on the board was very interesting. Got to see what a baseball team looked like from the inside corporate-wise. The litigation was all little, little stuff. I helped at a salary arbitration. I gave them some advice. on A financial advisor who was a friend of some of the ownership or management people. And that was pretty much what I did for the Padres in that era. I also was appointed by the mayor of San Diego or the city council, a combination of the two to be on a task force to try to keep the charges from Lee Town. Yeah, it was that like my that's sort of like my, my gun control work did not ultimately result in success, but uh met a lot of people who had an interesting time. It was all put on TV so people would Notice me. And we did then have a couple of sports related cases. We sued the NFL over Sunday ticket. 
under the antitrust laws, arguing that they should sell smaller packages than all of the games. That if you were a Dallas Cowboys fan living in San Diego, you should be able to buy the Dallas games sure. as a separate piece. And that case was settled. It was run mostly by my partners, and we had an assistant lacrosse coach come in and said that he was a restricted earnings coach in the NCAA, which meant that his pay was capped for reasons that actually made no sense at all. Uh, he was an assistant coach, and we brought an antitrust case. We beat the crap out of the NCAA. I was only involved at the very beginning, talking to the client, making sure the client was proper client to bring case, sort of talking about where to bring suit. And I was involved right at the end when there were efforts to settle the case after a successful trial and while it was on appeal. And it settled for a lot of dough. It was a really good result for the coaches. And it was one of the NCAA's first losses in an antitrust case. It's called Law versus NCAA, and it's cited in the O'Bannon case. Yes, of course. Alston case and, and all of those. You know, I was curious about that case. What was the legal rationale that was presented by the NCAA to cap those salaries? Competitive balance, mm -hmm. which makes no sense, right? If you have limiting the pay of your second lacrosse coach or your third soccer coach or your fifth basketball coach can't possibly have significations for competitive balance. Nobody's going to jump from, you know, the non-Power 5 to the Power 5 or from the bottom of the Power 5 to the top because they hired a great assistant assistant coach. Right, exactly. It made no sense. Yeah, well, that was the NCAA just being stubborn and saying, we're the NCAA, you can't sue us. That was, that was pretty much it. And it really was one of the first holes in their defense of you know, we can't do wrong where the NCAA, the Supreme Court told us to protect our long commitment to amateurism, but this case wasn't even about amateurism. Right. They thought they were untouchable, in my opinion. They thought they were untouchable. And uh, they fought it, but they didn't have much of a rationale. The rationale was cost saving. The proposal right. came from the cost saving committee. Yeah, and so it doesn't save them that much money either. I mean, it's like getting in trouble for nothing. Well, and and it also probably was the low hanging fruit for them, right? They didn't put caps on the salaries of the head coaches. Right. Because that would have gotten them into right. more trouble. So then take me through this case with Olivia Moultrie. Is that yeah. pronouncing that right? Moultrie. With an Moultrie, L. Yes. Yeah, with an L. What, um, you know, you mentioned in our earlier correspondence that this is one of the most interesting cases that you've worked on. I'm curious why you say yeah. so. I'll tell you about Olivia, but can we go back a step? Just Oh, sure. I, I want to talk about how my sports practice brought when I was about 50, 52, 54 years old, I got a little worn out on practicing law. I was working very hard. I was traveling a lot. Our cases are all over the country, even though we live in San Diego. And it just, it just weighed me out. And I decided that I was going to give up some of my management responsibilities for the firm. I was involved in hiring, running the antitrust department, running the appellate department. And I knew if I just went to my partners and said, I want to step back do less, take less money, and do something else with some of my time, they can say, no, no, you're too young, doing five years. So I approached the dean of the law school at Duke and said, what would you think if I came and taught a course sometime? And I guess I was 52 then. And I went and presented it to my partners as a fait accompli. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to step back to give you back some of my interest in the firm and we need to find other people to run all these departments. And, you know, I'll be back. I'm going to Durham, North Carolina for a semester. 
um, available by, you know, phone or I don't know if we have, do we have email in 2000? Probably. And I'm not quitting. I want to practice law. I'm available. I'll be here. And they all told me I was crazy and it didn't make sense. And why did exactly what I predicted? Why don't you do this mm -hmm. in five years or eight years? And I said, mm -hmm. I'm already committed. I signed a contract. They're expecting me. My course has students registered for it already. So I went off to North Carolina and I taught. And to make a long story short, I loved it. I did it uh, the next year at the University of San Diego and the next year at the University of San Diego. And then I noticed somebody had a course called Sports and the Law. And I thought, that would be fun. And so I asked the dean if I could teach sports and the law. And he said, no, I have a guy who teaches that just fine. And I got you teaching complex civil litigation, which you teach just fine. And why mess with it? And mm -hmm. so I didn't like the answer, but I waited. And then the guy who taught sports law left. And I said, remember me? And he said, well, yeah, if you want it now, you can have it. So I started teaching it. And if you teach it, you learn some of the things you don't know. So like labor law, I was not a labor lawyer and I learned labor law by teaching it. I'm learning mm -hmm. labor exemption to the antitrust laws by teaching it. And that got me more clients in the sports world as well. Just notice if you teach, then you go to the Sports Lawyers Association convention and then you write, I like to write op-ed pieces. And all of a sudden there's a guy in San Diego named Simon who knows something about this. So sure enough, we get to 20... 10 around there and there's an NBA lockout yes. and the leading agents in the NBA don't like what's going on. They don't like Billy Hunter, who's the head of the union. They're fearful of a bad collective bargaining agreement and they want a lawyer to advise them as to whether they can bring an antitrust case against the NBA, notwithstanding the fact that they have a union that the union is in collective bargaining negotiations with. League, which is a very difficult labor slash antitrust slash labor exemption question. And they approached several lawyers and I could talk labor with them and I could talk labor antitrust with them, which I would not have been able to do five years earlier. And I got the gig and I went with my partner, Bonnie Sweeney, and we gave these agents as good advice as we could give them. And we ran into some serious roadblocks. So basically, you know, we met a lot of interesting people, some of whom I'm still in touch with. We did a conference call with something like 110 NBA players, which is an interesting and unique experience. And we ultimately could not get where we needed to go. We basically couldn't bring the case unless we could get two thirds of players to turn on Billy Hunter. Mm -hmm. He could have gotten, you know, by estimate of the agents, half of the players to turn on Hunter. So the result was they signed a CBA. It was not perfect at all. And then they fired Billy Hunter a year later for some of the things we were complaining about. And then the NBA took off and everybody makes so much money, nobody's complaining. With a better CBA, the NBA players that were making mega millions would be making mega millions plus 15%. But people don't complain if there's enough money sloshing around. That kind of explains the synergy between the teaching and the writing and yes. the litigation. And also how I was like ready, willing, and able when Olivia showed up. I see. Okay. So, so take me through like that her. case. Yeah, I do. I'm okay. very curious about that case. So I was minding my own business trying to get ready to teach my sports law class. And I was inviting a soccer agent 
to speak to my class. His name is Spencer Wadsworth. He's at the Wasserman Agency in LA. Happens to be also a Duke alumnus. He played soccer at Duke. He played soccer in the MLS, played soccer overseas. Then he retired and became a soccer agent. And by happenstance, he ended up representing more female players than male players. He still does. Represents a lot of top female players in the country and some of the top male players. And I asked him if he would speak to my class. And I told him who had referred me to him. And he said, yeah, yeah, it's easy. And it was during COVID, which meant he didn't, didn't even have to leave his office. He could do it by Zoom. Sure. And I had noticed in his Wikipedia entry that he represented a 15 and a half year old woman named Olivia Moultrie, who wanted to play professional soccer and was not permitted to play professional soccer because she was only 15 and a half and they had an 18 year old age limit. And so I asked him about it and he said what I just said to you. And I said, is she good enough? 15 and a half? And he said, oh yeah, that's not even an issue. She's like the best young American prospect since me and him. It's incredible. Okay, let me ask you a couple of questions. Is there a union in this sport? He said, yeah, yeah, there's a new union. You know, not very strong yet. Well, I said, do they have a CBA? He said, no, no CBA yet. You know, it takes a while. That, you know, management dicks you around for a while before they give you a CBA. And I said, the age limit is a violation of the antitrust laws. And there's like silence on the line. And he said, what does that mean? And said, it means it's illegal. I said, yeah, but what does it mean practically? I said, it means we could probably get her into the league if we sue. And another silence of learning. And then he said, Mr. Simon, we don't know each other, but the person who put it together says you know a lot about this field. So I don't want to be insulting, but you know, the NBA has one and done, NFL has three and done, Major League Baseball, you can't sign until you're 18. Sounds like, you know, they're all illegal. I said, no, they're in CBA. And so what difference does it make? And I said, it's a difference between black and white. It's been developed over the years. Spencer Haywood sued the NBA a long time ago and won. And then somebody sued the NFL and then somebody sued the NHL. They all won. And the leagues have now negotiated these age limits with the unions and put them in the CBA because that gives them the protection of the labor exemption to the antitrust laws. And he said, do you tell me that my 15 and a half year old client should sue the league that she wants to play in? And I said, no, that's a difficult decision that she and her family can make with your help and with my help. And what I'm saying she could sue the league. And if she sued the league, in my opinion, she would win. And he said, well, how fast can you win? I said, <laughs> that depends on a lot of luck as to what kind of judge you get, kind of defense they put up. We could get a quick win or a slow win. I said, you could have be faster than the two and a half years she has to wait. I said, oh yeah, it could be a lot faster if we have some luck. And so, you know, to make a very long story short, we put together a team of lawyers. She was in Portland, Oregon, and she had an understanding that the Portland team, the Thorings, which is the best team in the NWSL and won the, won the championship this year, would sign her in a minute if she were available. And so we sued in federal court in Portland and the league defended just like Manchies. They fought us, you know, on the beaches and they fought us in the hills and they fought us everywhere about everything. Yeah. They were, in my opinion, nasty and overreaching. And I think they they lost some credibility with the judge for being as nasty and overreaching as there yeah. were. And we got some fantastic affidavits, declarations, statements under oath by 
members of the women's national team. Olivia had had an arrangement with the Portland team that she could practice with them every day, use their facilities. The coaches would talk to her. Trainers would talk to her. She could do everything but play games. So we had people on the national team. We had Becky Sauerbrunn, the captain of the national team, signing a declaration which said, I know this young lady. I've practiced against her. I've had scrimmages with her and against her. She could play tomorrow. And of course, that's very powerful evidence on the issue of whether there's harm being caused by the rule. Absolutely. And then we had lots of legal arguments about whether the rule was valid or not. The league was in negotiations for a CBA. So the argument on the other side, among many other arguments, was that this had already fallen into the labor exemption. It had become a labor problem and not an antitrust problem because there was going to be a CBA and it would properly address hate limits. As it turned out, the case was all over. They did enter a CBA and it doesn't have an age limit. So huh. anyway, we, we How fascinating. I thought we had to do a lot of very difficult lawyering under challenging circumstances because she wanted to play tomorrow. And so we had to find a way to get the court's attention. And we worked incredibly hard for about 12 weeks, pretty much around the clock, six or seven lawyers and three law firms. And we got a good result at every stage. We got a temporary restraining order that would have permitted her to play with the league, simply didn't comply with it. And we got a preliminary injunction. And we finally ended up on the phone with the judge, Anna, the judge saying, if they don't give her a contract by noon today, the second time, I'm going to hold the league in contempt. That was when she got a contract. It was, again, like law versus NCAA, they were insulted that anybody would sue them. Right. And it anyway was soon. And she signed, she played, she scored a goal in her first game or something like that. She had an assist in her second or third game. She's doing just fine. And she was recently listed as one of the five finalists for best U.S. female player under 22. Incredible. No, 17. Yeah, that's fantastic. And let me step back one second, though, here, because I'm a little bit curious about if the CBA, if there's a CBA and there's a clause in the CBA that allows there to be this restriction on the minimum age that's required to play, does that effectively mean there's collusion between the players and the owners to keep younger people out of the league if they're talented enough? Yes, and that it's legal. It's a legal form of collusion. Yeah, but why? Think, think about it in another industry. If you want to be a steel worker in Pittsburgh, there is a minimum age rule. And the fact that, you know, and I'm not sure, but let's just assume the rule that the limit is 18. You know, if you're a 17-year-old, young, strapping man, high school football star, who could certainly be a good steel worker tomorrow, and you're 17 and a half, you can sue to your heart's content and complain to your heart's content. You're not going to get in because the union and management have agreed to a collective bargaining agreement with all kinds of terms of, you know, pensions and salaries and salary increases and promotions or whatever, and it includes an age limit. And that's what the NBA did after they lost the Spencer Haywood case and what the NFL did. And actually, Maurice Claret, if you remember him, Ohio State runs that. He sued the NFL uh, well after Spencer Haywood and company, I think the early 2000s. And his theory was sort of like the question you asked me, you know, how can this be? I'm good enough to play in the NFL. I'm tired of college. Yeah. I want to play. There's something wrong with this. And the court said, no, there's nothing wrong with it. You know, you have a union and the union has this right. There is, you know, there's a wrinkle nobody has ever 
pushed, mm -hmm. which is that there is something called the duty of fair representation. And if unions act in a way which unfairly discriminates between some of their members and other of their members, a, a worker can sue the union. Now, the problem is that all of the precedents are union members suing the union, and neither Claret nor Olivia would have been a member at the time. Right. And the other problem is it's nobody's ever won that case or even brought that case. It's just not clear whether it will be considered unfair to keep the 17 and a half year old steel worker out of the steel business or to keep Claret out of the NFL. But so he's going to do that later. Yeah. WNBA has, has a four and four and done rule. So there are very talented female college basketball players being held back by a rule which is being agreed to between the league, which may not care one way or the other, and the union, which is protecting the jobs of its members. Well, it's also effectively protecting the NCAA's product, isn't it? It is protecting but, the NCAA. But they're not directly involved in the negotiation right. of they, the CBN. They don't get consulted, and the rules have changed so many times. You know, I mean, basketball has gone from, you know, four years, one year, and right. You know, years back to one year and football, it's gone from four years to three years. And I don't think there's ever been any suggestion that they talk to the NCA, but it, it does affect the NCA's product. And there is pushback from the NCA. There has been a lot of talk over the years, as you know, about one and done being an unfortunate line to draw. Yes. What do you think it should be, Len? Let's say in basketball. Basketball, I think it should be zero and done. I mean, 18 would be okay. 17 or 18 makes sense. To me, if you're Kobe Bryant or you're LeBron James, you know, why not? They did it and it worked. And there's just no reason to think that the NBA is going to sign players who aren't really ready to play. So you would hope that players and their families and their agents would be able to bring them to this process and figure out whether they needed a year or two at either Duke or Kentucky or UCLA or someplace where they didn't. But I think they ought to make that decision on their own. Football, football is harder because I think such an overwhelming majority of 18-year-olds are not ready, physically ready for the NFL, that you're kind of inviting more, more problems. And there's no minor leagues. In basketball, you can, you can send them to the D League or G League, whatever they call them now, and there's various other things, other kinds of leagues available to them. So if somebody jumps too soon, there's places to stash them and have to get some experience. But the NFL is kind of all or nothing. That's right. Do you think the NFL should be required by law to have its own minor league? I don't think you can get there from here. I don't think there's any law that would require it. I mean, I do think there's a case, maybe it's not a legal case, but maybe a moral case to be made that the NFL is profiting pretty handsomely from the universities being their minor league. Yeah, the universities are profiting handsomely. Some of them are profiting That's handsomely. Yeah. Um, That's true. Some. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I found actually, if you ask me now, you know, my two favorite recent, semi-recent cases, my two favorite sports cases are probably my representing the NBA agents unsuccessfully and representing Olivia successfully. And they both turned on the labor exemption to the antitrust laws. It's mm -hmm. become a big, a big issue. And there really is, somebody is going to bring that case about the duty of fair representation. In the last... NFL lockout, where there was a lawsuit brought. It's called 
Brady versus NFL because Tom Brady was the lead plaintiff in the case. That collective bargaining agreement gave back a lot of money in rookie salaries. The rookie salary structure was changed to the detriment of the rookies. And the leaders of the union admitted to the press that, you know, the owners want to save a billion dollars or something. I forget the number. So we gave them a half a billion on the rookies, and then we're looking at the other half a billion. Well, they're admitting that they're essentially screwing the rookies because the rookies are represented to the union. And there's something wrong with that. And you know, it's power to do that. Maybe the rookies are being paid too much in the first place. They were very rich tracks for top draft choices at that kind time. Of, but that's how you look at it, I guess. That, right? case, that case is out there. It's, you know, just the way people thought that a big antitrust case against the NCAA was coming, it was coming, it was coming, and O'Bannon finally brought it. I think a case like that is coming because, as I said, the WNBA is keeping a lot of good players out of their league. And the NFL has pushed the rookie the rookie numbers down. Interestingly, they when they sued, Brady sued, they had five or six plaintiffs, including Von Miller, was one plaintiff, and he was a rookie. And I have no doubt that he was put in there so that they could say everybody's represented, including the rookie. I would love to have taken his deposition and ask him what he thought about the new rookie salary scale and if he had been consulted. And I don't know. Never met Von Miller, haven't heard him interviewed. I don't know his level of sophistication, but I think a good businessman would have trouble answering those questions because he really was brought in for them to say, we have a rookie here. To avoid that duty of representation. Yeah. We got Tom Brady and we got Ron Miller and we got everybody in between. Yeah. So you would need a rookie or somebody to, to be the, the face of that class action. And that hasn't happened yet, but you see that as potentially happening sometime down the road. Isn't, isn't that, isn't that bleak right. in a lot of these sports? Again, sort of like what I said about the NBA, you're making enough money. The fact that you might've made 15% more is not such a bad thing. And it also is unusual to get a good result in a year as we did with Olivia. So, you know, if you're a college sophomore and you want to go pro in the NFL, the idea that you're going to get in faster by suing, probably not right. going to work. Right, because the courts yeah, take, take courts so are slow. People are take appeals. I mean, that case could have gone a lot of different directions. So we're talking about football and basketball, and of course, those are the big time revenue generating sports in colleges. And I know you've been instrumental in the names, images, and likeness efforts. You've worked with Senator Skeeter, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on that that issue and where we are now today. I think you were involved in helping Senator Skinner Senate Bill two hundred six, which was passed in twenty nineteen and allows college athletes in the state of California to profit from their names, images, and likenesses, which is, of course, a historic law, and I think an important one myself. So what got you interested in this issue of names, images, and likenesses in the first place? Was it, it was a labor it was law issue? It was, again, my teaching. You know, when I, when I taught, I would obviously teach a few weeks on NCAA issues, and I noticed the, the case of Jeremy Bloom, which is NCAA. Bloom was a Good high school football, very good high school football player, but a very, very good skier when off and yes. skied. And again, to make a long story short, when he retired from skiing at a young age, he came back and was offered a scholarship to play football at Colorado. He was a wide receiver. And he had apparel contracts from his skiing time, which clearly were attributable either to his skiing notoriety or his good looks or combination of the two, and not the fact that he had once been a good high school football player right. in Colorado. Right. And the NCAA 
had come to its senses a few years before that and agreed with the concept you could be a professional in one sport and still be an amateur in another sport. So they didn't rule that his being a professional skier prohibited him from playing for Colorado, but they did rule that the contracts, the apparel contracts were, were prohibited him from playing football and they had to get rid of them all because they were compensation for his ball skills. And their answer to that question of, well, isn't this really compensation for skiing was, well, we can't separate them. So it's kind of like, you know, tie goes in favor of the NCAA against, against the athlete. That's all the only sense you could make out of it. And it got me thinking about name, image, and likeness overall, what the law was, you know, that the athletes had the right under state law to monetize their name, image, and likeness. And it was being taken away through yes. their signing of essentially a scholarship contract and their agreement to abide by NCAA amateurism rules. And where I taught it, my students could tell that I hated the decision and I thought the area was ripe for better developments down the road sometime. And I saw the Open Man case brought. I knew some of the people in the case because they're in the plaintiff's antitrust bar, the people I know. And I was rooting for them. I was never a big fan of salaries for college players, but I thought name, image, and likeness really should have been a six-inch putt. The money is coming from third parties and it costs the university nothing. It should not be connected to recruiting, which that's all another story we can talk about. What's the problem with Nike, you know, giving a contract to Zion Williamson when he's a Duke? Because he's famous. He's famous like LeBron is famous. So they want a Zion shoe and he's entitled to the money just as would be, you know, opera singer at Duke or a jazz clarinetist at Duke who was that good and had that amount of notoriety. Nobody would question anything it did on campus. So I was rooting, you know, rooting for them, but not sure I wanted to go all the way to competitive salaries from the universities. And as you said, I got involved with Senator Skinner's bill. I wasn't there at the creation. I'd written an op-ed piece, again, in the San Francisco Chronicle, the only two that I've written in that paper, but we talked about them both, about name, image, and likeness. And Senator Skinner was already writing her bill, I think, but hadn't seen the article. So we got together immediately. People knew us both said, you guys are both talking about the same thing. Len is writing that it should be a reality if Senator Skinner is writing a bill that would make it a reality, at least in one state. So I went with her on some revisions of it, and I spent a lot of time talking to a few of the state representatives and state senators about why it was a good idea, would not end college sports as we know it and love it. And I testified on the bill in Sacramento in front of the legislative committee, and you know all went well, and it passed, and a lot of, a lot of other states following us. I spent time on the phone with the people in Florida who were writing the bill that I think was the second one that went through. And California was the leader. So all of us spent time talking to people in the other states about why we wrote ours our way. And some of them wrote almost identical bills. And some of them did things a little differently. And again, I thought it was law hanging through for an antitrust case. Not as easy as law versus NCAA, but a case where it really made no sense to say either that Zion Williamson couldn't have a Nike contract or that some women's volleyball player at Stanford could not have an apparel contract. It made no sense to me. It was no skin off Stanford's nose. It was pure amateurism as we interpret it. But you do stop short of saying that 
the university should pay these athletes for the use of their names, images, and likenesses, right? If I understand the, the argument you make. I don't yeah. think anybody ever contemplated that at the beginning that universities would pay. We used to use the term third-party NIL. Mm -hmm. You look at the briefs filed in O'Bannon, if you look at the discussion of Skinner's bill, other things, they're always talking about third-party NIL. And they're saying the money will come from Nike. The money will come from a Cadillac dealer in Tuscaloosa who wants the Alabama quarterback to come out to the dealership on Sundays and shake hands and get in more customers. The deal will come from social media, from players becoming social media influencers, particularly tall, good-looking female athletes. And it is. And that's all third-party money. What's happened with the collectives and the recruiting, it's gone in a place where it wasn't expected to go. And so what I was saying was, I was not ready to come to the conclusion that under the antitrust laws, players should be paid salaries because they're generating the money. That again, to use Zion Williamson as an example, that he and his teammates should be able to demand contracts from Duke for playing basketball and negotiate prices that would fit their level of talent and their contribution to the team. I wouldn't say never. I just thought that that was a big step further downstream and that third-party NIL with no connection to the university, no recruiting impact, should have been a no-brainer and we should have done it and see where it left us. Because people pushing for NIL and the people pushing for salaries were saying the same thing. They were saying Zion and like players are creating the show that is producing a lot of the money and they're getting nothing. Right. And my thought was, let's get them some money through NIL and let's see how it feels. Does it feel like it's now fully compensatory? And the salary structure is, it, it's a big, complicated problem. Are you going to pay all the players on the team? And how much are you going to pay them? Are you going to negotiate? Does Mike Krzyzewski have to negotiate salaries or his athletic director with every player on every team each year? It's a huge project, create a lot of hate and discontent. And then what about a star lacrosse player at the same school? And what about female basketball player, female lacrosse player? What about title nine? And right. it just on and on and on. Everything about third-party NIL is safe. And everything about salaries is unsafe and complicated mm -hmm. and everything about nil paid for or arranged by the school coordinated by the school is kind of somewhere in between mm -hmm. looking dangerous and title nine is the best example if you know if san diego state here right across town for me is arranging name image and likeness deals for its players, for its cup, for its men's basketball players. I think it's violating Title IX if it doesn't arrange it for its female basketball players. Right. And it may not be able to deliver the goods for the female players because they're not as well known and they're not as successful. Or it could go the other way. We've seen a lot of influencers from the women's sports community that are getting a lot more money because of that. But, but they're not getting it from they're not getting it from the universities. Right. And they're not even being arranged for the universities. They're, they're again, the true, the true third-party NIL people. They're like Jeremy Bloom. They are making the money because other people want to pay them to their apparel or what have you. 
That's right. So you're not saying that down the road, you couldn't envision a future where universities are paying for the use of these NILs, but it's just at this particular juncture, uh, a bridge too far. Is that you're saying that right? Yeah. I mean, it was a bridge too far before we even had NIL. Now we're almost in, you know, kinder, you know, we're, we're in between. We don't know where we are. Nobody knows. Certainly does seem like it's the Wild Nobody West right now. the NIL is going because the NCAA has punted. They, you know, they, they said, we're going to have regulations. We're going to have regulations. We're going to have regulations. They drafted regulations, published them. And then they did nothing because they had lost very badly. Yeah. And especially the concurring opinion, Kavanaugh. And they were afraid to put regulations out about NIL because they thought that would be one more extremely dangerous and expensive you know, trust case. Plaintiffs would show that they would have gotten X dollars in an open market for name, image, and likeness because of the NCAA's rules. They got, you know, 0.3 X dollars or 0.5 X dollars. And therefore, the NCAA owed them the difference times three because we have treble damages. So right. I can understand maybe why they punted, but it was just unfortunate. It was always assumed by the people who supported NIL that there would be some form of regulation that would keep it from becoming the Wild West. And there isn't. There's no regulation. So schools are doing very different things. Miami is doing different things from anyone because they've got a booster who wants to take this and run with it and essentially recruit football players for the football coach. I've seen that. And other Power 5 schools are doing much less and are being much more cautious. Meanwhile, there's unionization efforts going up, which right. would have... That might be a better answer to. Yeah, I wanted to ask about the unionization because it does seem to be to hinge upon, well, not a bit. It, it seems to hinge upon the question of whether these athletes are employees of the university or not, which has been unsettled in the law, if I understand it correctly. There's been yeah, some, there is, some efforts. But. There isn't much out there in the law. There's a case here, a case there, and several of them were about a handful, of, the only handful of cases, and half of the handful are about whether they're employees under the Fair Labor Standards Act. Right. The Northwest the right to minimum wage and overtime pay. And that's actually a slightly different standard for what an employee is than under the National Labor Relations Act, which would allow them to unionize. But again, the world of college sports has gotten fantastically complicated. Once you got past NIL, which I think third-party NIL was relatively simple and would have worked, Everything else is complicated. The collectives are complicated. The Title IX issues are complicated. Unionization is fantastically complicated because you can't unionize any other state universities. Right. And so if you take Power Five, you wanted to have union rules or men's college football so that they were on a level playing field. And the players got paid, but they got paid some standard amount or negotiated with a salary cap. Any of the things you'd want to do Take the power five and try to make them look like the NFL. Well, they won't. They want a salary cap. They want a salary structure. Well, that has to include all the teams. And if all the teams doesn't include Alabama, doesn't include Texas, doesn't include UCLA, doesn't include Ohio State, doesn't include Michigan, what are you talking about? Right. That would be like NFL having a labor contract with the union that covered only eight teams. It just doesn't work. So I don't know what. I don't know what they're going to do. The NLRB is bringing a case against USC, mm -hmm. charging that their their athletes are employees 
and they should have the employees' rights to bargain relations act, and that it's an unfair labor practice for the university to refuse to bargain with her. And uh, that's an interesting case. It'll take a while to get through the courts, but it isn't very easy for USC to say, if you wanted to, we're okay with unionization because what do they say to their, to their league, which I guess is now the Big Ten? They're going to have different rules than the rest of the Big Ten for recruitment of things, or they're going to pay their players' salaries, which are contrary to the NCAA. It's a really interesting time. Charlie Baker has got a big challenge in taking this over. It does seem that you are eminently experienced and qualified to understand these issues and explain them. I really, really appreciate you helping to enlighten me and my listeners about them, you know, given your experience with complex civil litigation and also sports law. And it also occurs to me that, you know, you've had such a unique experience in sports in terms of, you know, growing up watching the Yankees, going to the games, not only being fascinated by the, the games itself, but also, you know, who owns the team, who's running the team, and then becoming a sports writer and then an attorney working in sports. And so, you know, I'm curious if you can sum things up for us today about your life in sports and teaching sports law doing sports law, growing up in sports. I like to ask all my guests about what the power of sports is to them, but I'm curious how you would answer that question. I think the answer is twofold. I think first is I'm plain and simple a fan, and I enjoy watching sports. I have my teams, which are Padres and Duke basketball, and I have the overall scene. You know, the World Cup was fascinating to me. I didn't have a big Rooting interest, I didn't expect the U.S. to win the World Cup, but thought that the competition was phenomenal. I can sort of walk into anything. I can walk over to Hawaii High School and I can watch a Hawaii lacrosse match and enjoy seeing the play. I've been to the NCAA's in a lot of different sports, including wrestling and all kinds of things. I've been to you know, track and field, Olympics. I love sports. I love to watch them. I enjoy the competition. So there's that piece. And I was a sports nut when I was seven or 10 or 12 years old, and I remained the same. But when I had a law degree and I started practicing law and realized that there were fascinating legal issues that arose in the sports context, I found that really fascinating because it allowed me to sort of develop an expertise that not everybody else would have. You know, a lot of the sports fans are not lawyers and this stuff is kind of complicated. And a lot of lawyers are not sports fans or have not don't have the time or energy or opportunity to spend time in the sports fields. I feel very fortunate when I go to the Sports Lawyers Association convention and see a room full of people who either have the Red Sox or represent Major League Baseball or teach sports law or do what I do. I think most of them feel very lucky that they got there. Most of them are sports fans and they're happy that what they're doing is something that they really enjoy doing separate and apart from the professional enjoyment of being a lawyer. So yeah, I think Olivia was really a lot of fun because I liked her and her family. I thought her cause was just, it was a challenge to get the court's attention very fast and get a result very fast. And I got to use all of my legal skills to deliver something very valuable to her. Now, if I did that just for a kid who got kicked out of La Jolla High School unfairly and it was going to ruin his career and wouldn't be able to go to college, I would feel very good about it in the same way. But sports does have that little extra added wrinkle to it. It is more 
fun to go to Major League Baseball's office in New York City and sit and talk to people who run it, including the commissioner, about baseball. A little more fun than going to the headquarters of Xerox Corporation, where I've also been, and sit and talk to the CEO and the COO and the general counsel about a very difficult antitrust problem for Xerox. One is an A and the other is an A+. Plus. You know, I'm 73. I could retire on the regular law stuff, but I wouldn't want to give up the next Olivia if she walked in the door. It's just, it's too much fun. Well, I really appreciate that. And I, I'm so grateful to you. And you've been an A-plus guest today. And we've run a little bit long. I hope that's all right. But I, I just want to thank you again for being a guest on the Power Sports Podcast. It's been a lot of fun. You're very welcome. It was, it was my pleasure. I enjoy meeting you through this process and enjoy thinking about my career this way. It's a good retrospective opportunity to think through all the things that have happened. Thanks very I'm, much. I'm very glad to hear that. Have a great rest of your day and happy thank new you. year, Len. Let's thank keep you. in touch. Okay. Yeah. Take good care. Bye-bye. Thank you all very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Power of Sports podcast. My thanks again to Len Simon for coming on the show. It was a real pleasure and an honor to learn from him about sports and the law. Look forward to seeing you all back here next time for the next episode. Happy New Year.